How you doing, Brian? We are I'm alive good. to the whole uh, LinkedIn, Twitch, Facebook community. How you doing today? It's a beautiful thing. I love it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing pretty good. Doing as good as I can, right? Uh, getting by. I'm really excited about this conversation we're going to have today with uh, Peter Lynch. And we're going to talk about his human-centered leadership. I love it, you know, and in particular coming from a background of human-centered design myself, you know, that's uh, way back in the day. That's what that's what we used to commonly call it, right? HCD. It was uh, uh, something that has sort of evolved into experience design is what you kind of more commonly hear it talked about today, but it, it factors in strongly into a lot of uh, customer experience or CX you know, that uh, you kind of hear is a, a buzz phrase today. Part of what is interesting to me about Peter, I mean, he's I mean, he's a phenomenal speaker, for one thing. <laughs> he's an author, <laughs> uh, and he's a people person, and a special kind of people person. By that, I mean, you know, he's, he's all about uh, human capital. Uh, and, you know, that sounds like a very uh, sort of book definition kind of term of what it is to work with people in an organization, right? <laughs> Human capital. Um, but, uh, you know, Peter, Peter brings a lot of uh, interesting perspectives uh, to his approach. And this is one that I'm especially uh, keen to learn more about uh, from the author of The Ugly Advantage. I know. I, I can't, I don't know what else I can add to that, Brian. <laughs> with that, let's, let's just bring uh, Peter up on the, on the show here. All right. There he hey, is. How you doing, Peter? <laughs> doing great, Nick and Brian. Great to see you both again. Peter, welcome. Yeah, it's great to Thank see you. you as well. Thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to to join us and and do this. I mean, this is easy. Anytime I get to talk about this topic, you know, it gets me really excited. So this is easy. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that because you're going to do most of the talking today. <laughs> <laughs> My wife would tell you I have no problem with that. <laughs> Well, we all have wives, so I, I think we can relate. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> why, why don't you start off, you know, for folks who haven't uh, heard the previous episode that you joined us on or haven't heard, you know, some of your your many LinkedIn or YouTube clips, uh, just give us a little <laughs> bit of a background about yourself and uh, kind of how you've made this transition into, you know, really uh, framing things from the leadership perspective that you're doing today. Yeah, so I grew up in rural Washington State. Um, I had a superhero mom. Uh, we, we grew up in a single wide mobile home, didn't have a, a lot to our name. She had left some really hard situations um, to protect me. And when we were three years old, we moved into a single wide mobile home with very little means. My mom milked cows, making a living. She worked harder than anyone I've ever met. She hadn't graduated high school, but she ended up going back in her 40s, got her GED, just a, a superstar. So, you know, and I, I got to see somebody really challenge um, the things that are hard to do the thing that is right. And so I, I had this base and this foundation of it's okay to do the hard thing if you know it's the right thing. And so from that, I then moved into um, my starting my career and um, I started to, to work at a university, South Pacific University. I actually thought I might go the, the route of a professorship, but um, over time, 
um, w- one of the things that I found was how much I loved business and working with people in a business setting. And so I, I took a job with Gateway Computers, if you remember the cow spotted boxes. And <laughs> From milking cows to uh, <laughs> yeah, <that's> cow <laughs> branding. That's right. <laughs> there was some consistency. <laughs> and uh, moved with my wife to the Midwest in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And we spent uh, several years there and I worked with them and then ended up moving to um, Colorado to work with Dish Network. And uh, all along this this road, as I worked for different companies, Western Union and Empower Retirement and um, Dish Network, uh, I was always in roles that focused on people. So whether it's HR training, change management, those kinds of things. And I just began to see the power of empowered people. And, you know, I loved when I watched Braveheart, one of my favorite movies, when I heard this idea in line and I researched them a little bit. And, you know, this idea that it was better to have one person fighting for something they believed in than a hundred paid soldiers. And this idea that empowered people empower people and they change the game. And so it just became this this thing that I chased and this passion that I had. And I, I, I'm not the smartest guy. I've never been the smartest guy in any room I've been in. <laughs> never had the best pedigree. Never had, you know, some of these trappings that might lead me to have big roles. But one thing I did is I cared about people as a foundation is people meant something to me. And that foundation became, I think, this jumping off point to be able to connect with people from a stage and ultimately to help lead organizations around their practices related to people. That's a great background. I'm, I'm curious, did you ever paint your face blue? I mean, in the <laughs> most inspired way, you know, before, uh, particularly before going out in a corporate meeting, I think that would yeah. be great. <laughs> like the half face. Co- yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they'll never take our budget. I, I didn't, I didn't yell that going into a meeting. <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, that, Nick and I, you know, when we talk about people, I mean, empathy is one of those leadership traits that's uh, front and center for both of us. It's, it, it just factors into so many different things. And it's a characteristic that I can say I've never seen absent from anyone that I would qualify as a great leader. Yeah, it, it's one that I've seen remarkably absent in many who have failed to lead. Yeah. <laughs> so so hearing you speak to that a little bit, I think, is, uh, you know, uh, that resonates strongly with me. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's really a central tenet. You know, I'm actually, I'm rewriting one of the chapters in my book um, just around some of the ideas that we're talking about. And and this idea of empathy and caring for people and a focus on people, you know, it's <clears throat> you expand others' authenticity when you hold space for them to be authentic. And when, you know, to me, that's what empathy is. A lot of times, empathy is just holding space for somebody to do something that you allow yourself to do. And it's not natural, you know, it's not necessarily our human nature, but when you do that, when you hold that space, you create an opportunity for that person to become somebody better than they are right now. I love that you said empathy right now. I mean, that's one of my things is I I always say one of the best qualities of a leader is just genuinely caring about the people that they're leading. Right. And I mean, that's the way when I always think of empathy, it's like, you know, you care about them as people, you care about their personal lives, you care about their career goals and you just care about them, you know, in general, when it genuinely 
and honestly comes across, people feel that and they take care of your customers and your clients or, or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, when I started to frame this idea that the new way to win the marketplace was through the, through the workplace, um, we were as a team here at Cardinal Group, we were looking at what is our why? What's our HRY? You know, what are we doing? And somebody said this phrase and it just, it hit me square between the eyes. And I was like, yeah, this is what we have to do if we want to win the people game. And this person said, we give a damn about people. You know, that is at the core and center of everything. If we give a damn about people, then guess what happens from an HR perspective, instead of us being about um, punishment as the front line, we become about restoration. And do we need to do things to keep team members safe and companies safe? Yes. But if we're focused first on restoration and education and helping because we give a damn about people, it totally changes the game as a leader. Yeah, I I would say that I really, I mean, that whole comment that you just made there just resonates so strongly with me. And some of the corporate strategic planning work that I've done, as we've talked about, what are the key focus areas? to drive strategic imperatives for the organization. Employee experience is one of those things that has continually gotten moved up front. Yeah. And I think part of what you're saying, you know, the way that I'm, I'm interpreting it is when you have a culture where the company cares about its people, the people in turn care about the company. They care about the products. They're they're bought yep. in. It's it's not a job. It's a uh, you know <laughs> it's something where there's genuine commitment yeah. and it's reciprocated at all levels throughout the organization. And that yeah. pays back dividends once they're interacting on the front lines with customers. Right. It's so true, Brian. And that's why you know people always talk about you know well how do you build culture? And I, I I've always said you know I I think it's less about building culture. It's more about unleashing culture. And that's why you know. I go back always to that definition of culture that I have, that culture is not a mission or vision. It's the worst behavior you tolerate as an organization. And so what, what that means is what are you tolerating as um, leadership principles? Because if you're tolerating bad things, that's going to be your culture. Your culture is just almost a mirror that reflects <laughs> what you're tolerating. And so we have to, we have to tolerate, we have to stop tolerating things that are not acceptable in an organization where you truly give a damn about people. If you do, you won't tolerate those things. Perfect. And I think that's a great segue to uh, talk about what we brought you on here for today. Your, <laughs> your new uh, model, your, your human centered leadership. And I thought I'd just pull up your, your graphic there that caught my eye that you posted on LinkedIn. And as, as you hit on culture right there, I, I looked at this graphic and I want to hear more, but just looking at it in general, I was like, oh, this just totally makes sense to me. <laughs> Yeah, it was one of those. And I told you a little earlier, Nick, I had, was preparing for uh, Human Capital Institute's um, annual leadership summit. So I did their keynote and I had this idea, but I hadn't formalized it into a model. And so I've been working on it. And one Sunday I told my wife, I said, I really need to go in the office because I got to focus on this. And I went in at eight in the morning and I thought I was going to be there for a couple hours. Well, at five o'clock, she's like, where are you? And I said, <laughs> I am developing one of the things. I haven't been this excited about a leadership model in a long time. And um, basically what I had come to was this understanding that there are people involved on the human side. 
Um, and then there's leadership on the other side. So there's two things. There's the human side and the leadership side. And those two things collide together to create a culture. And the, the first thing I, I did is I, I basically applied an idea to try and frame that. So the this idea of Anukshuks and campfires came to me. And f- so I'll, if it's okay, I'll talk about those for just a second. Oh, it's um, okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. So an Anukshuk... Um, is if you remember the Whist- the the Olympics, the Winter Olympics when they were in Whistler, Canada, uh, Vancouver, Canada, sorry. Um, and the logo for that Olympics was an Inukshuk. And an Inukshuk is a rock formation that's made to look like a person. And I grew up in Seattle, so I've been up to Vancouver and Whistler. And you find these mainly across Northern Canada and Western Canada. And these rock formations were built by the Inuit tribes. And they were designed for when the tribes would go out. And it did three real things. Um, And it's kind of the where, who, and why. But the three things it did was, number one, it provided direction. So if you would scan the horizon, you would see an Anukshuk, and you knew that's where you should walk. And when you got to that Anukshuk, you scanned the horizon to find the next. And it became a way for you to traverse and to go out. And while you were out, a lot of times these journeys could be 10 months long and you were in the middle of nowhere. And seeing that Anukshuk, you knew someone else had been there. So you weren't alone. And so there, there was this who. And then the last thing that they did is they helped them with abundance during the trip. So if one of the arms is pointing to an open field, you knew that was a great place to hunt. If it was by water, you knew that was a great place to fish. And the distance it was from the water is how far you should cast your nets out. And so it became this whole story of abundance. And the why to me was that tie-in to say, how do we, how do we become abundant as people? And so this Anukshuk became this great model to say, how do you send people out to do the work? And then when these tribes would come together in the the tribe, they would gather around a campfire. And this is how they came back together. And when they did this, they gathered, they shared stories, they learned and built culture. And so this became the gathering. And when COVID hit, you know, so many companies sent their people out, but there became this lack of how do we gather our people? How do we bring them back together? And so I started to noodle on this idea of how do we create as companies campfire moments, even when we're not in the same office? And that's where I started to really build this thing that I think the the leadership and the next generation that's going to win are leaders that even if it's virtual, even if people are in different places at different times, that they are masters of creating campfires that draw teams back together in a way where they come together and they feel connected. Connected. And so they're, they're given direction to go out. They're given direction to come together. And in the middle of that, you build amazing culture. This is great. And, you know, graphically, I mean, everything is represented so clearly, you know, coming again from a, a background in human centered design, <laughs> you know, part, part of what, you know, I just, uh, I picked up on right away. You know, we, we used to talk about the three eyes in, mm-hmm. in HCD, and and so it was inspire, ideate, and implement, right? Wow. And 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 the inspiration part, it it was a lot like the campfire moments that you're talking about, you know, where regardless of where people had been or where people were coming from, it was important 
to first share in those ideas and and start to pick up from the intelligence that everyone carried that was unique to their own perceptions and experiences. And that could be carried forward then into more of this community cultural kind of setting where new ideas could then flow into, you know, these are the changes that are ultimately needed based on this information. And then that drove towards implementation. And I love that, Brian. And this is, you know, one of the taglines that we have started to use as a company is kind of speaking right to what you said. And this is why, you know, we've, we're launching what I think one of the most important programs for companies in today's day and age to launch our successful uh, DE&I program. So diversity, equity, inclusion, that you make your team members feel belong, like they belong. Um, but we have this new phrase where, you know, forever people talked about culture fit. You know, we need people that are a culture fit. And I said, that's so wrong. I said, because then you become, you know, this very singular organization. And so we are not an organization at Cardinal of culture fit. We are one of culture addition. And so what we want to do is we want to add to our culture, the brilliance that comes from a diverse equitable and inclusive environment. And that it's the same thing from the design because now we're bringing in these new ideas that make us go, I've never thought of that before. And it's one of my favorite books, The Challenger Sale, one of my favorite sales books. Um, I had been a fan of spin selling for years and Neil Rackham. And when I saw Neil Rackham was on the cover endorsing it, I'm like, I got to read this book. But <laughs> the, the general premise of this book was the best salespeople make their customers say this. I never thought of that before. And when you do that, you inspire people to connect. Mm -hmm. And so that's the power of culture addition. When you gather people around a campfire and you make leaders and team members say things like, wow, I never thought of that before. I never had that perspective. Guess what you do? You build connection around that culture addition. So part of what I'm hearing you say is it's not great to be surrounded by a bunch of yes men. (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. And that's my kids have taught me that, that I've grown more and more as they push me on topics. <laughs> I like you brought up the, the culture fit, right? Because we, we've heard that a lot um, in recent years. And as you're talking about you know, diversity, inclusion and all that, I think the um, Brene Brown has a book. Is it, is it belonging or something like that? Dare to lead. That's what it is. And, and yeah her phrase about true belonging is that true belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I thought right there, that's what diversity and inclusion is about. It's not about bringing someone in who fits your mold. It's about bringing something in who has something you don't have and allowing them to be who they are. That's right. Um, And the way you put that was just, just perfect. And I thought it was like dead on right there with Brene Brown. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I I resonate so much with her content. My book is, I feel like just a continuation of, of the, the amazing work she did. And to me, that is the power of belonging. It's that I'm empowered to tap into what makes me unique that I don't have to fit a mold. Actually, I shouldn't, right? That my unique experience actually makes the whole team way better. Yeah. You know, again, back from a design uh, principles perspective, when, when you have someone who has scanned the territory just as you have, and because, you know, however they're mentally equipped or whatever their experience has been, 
they are able to see things and, yeah. you know, maybe underlying details that have been overlooked by you. And once you see them, it's, it's almost like those things, you know, someone turns up the Rio <laughs> stat, right? It's like now yeah. they become blaringly obvious, but, uh, yeah. you know, it, that's, that's part of what bringing that, uh, multiplicity of perspectives together, um, can really do to help from a solutioning perspective. Yeah. And, you know, Brian, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a storyteller. And the reason I'm a storyteller is I, I had a really hard time in school. Like learning was really hard for me growing up. Um, I had a hard time and what I had to do was I had to create stories that help frame ideas so that I could more easily remember and kind of cut through the noise of the distraction in my head. And so to me, when you tell that immediately a story pops in my head, it's a story of when my son was really young. I think he was five years old and I was getting him breakfast one morning and we go to the cereal cabinet and I open it and I say, what do you want? And he said a cereal that wasn't in there. And the first time I'm like, no, no, you have to pick something here. He's, and he said the other, I'm like, you're not getting what I'm saying. And I'll never forget. He said, no, daddy, listen. And I, I was like, what, what, what am I not hearing? And all of a sudden, what I noticed was that my wife had bought that cereal, but it wasn't in the cabinet. It was somewhere else. Well, he's small. He's short. He had a different perspective. And he articulated something <laughs> that I couldn't see because I was so sure that the only cereal we had was here. And he articulated to me, no, listen, I'm bringing a different perspective and you're not seeing something. That to me was the brilliance of perspective. Um, that is what we have to, when we have human-centered leadership, we value that, right? We don't want everybody to look like us. We want people to have different perspectives and see things differently than us because they're going to find things that we can't see. <laughs> and it, one of the key words that you just used there was listen. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's ironic how often someone is not listening to what you're saying. They're listening only to find out when you're going to stop talking so that they can insert the next brilliant thing that they're going to tell you, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that happens a lot. And I'll tell you what, it's really my wife taught me this lesson. So the first, the first nine years of my marriage, when she said to me, are you wearing that? I thought it was a question. <laughs> it was it was never a question, but, you know, it was constructed like a question. If she wrote it on a piece of paper, it probably would have a question mark at the end, but it was never a question. And it took me <laughs> nine years to truly listen, to understand that she wasn't asking me a question. She was giving me a really important perspective that what I was wearing was stupid <laughs> and I should probably <laughs> change. So, yes, it, I, I think, you know, if we are lifelong learners, then we will always be learning new things. And if we're not, we're stuck. And so we've got to open ourselves up to the potential that maybe something that I saw for nine years a certain way, I'm wrong about. And I need to take a new perspective on that. So listening, yeah, listening is definitely an entry point to great leadership. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of you for getting in under the decade mark on learning that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like that you brought up the, the listening and w one of our previous guests we had, um, Peter Margaritas, his, his big thing is improv, right? And he took <laughs> the whole thing about listening. He goes, you know, improv is about listening to understand, not listening to respond. That's great. Um, and I'm like, well, that's perfect. And he's like, well, I took it from improv. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think when you look at it that way, you know, instead of stopping and listening to what the person's communicating to you, what they're saying before you even think about how you're going to respond. And I've, I've even caught myself, you know, stopping. I'm like, wait, I'm listening. I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say instead of just yeah. 
being present in the moment with this person, trying to understand what they're saying. Yeah. So I really like that. Well, and this is, you know what, Nick, I'm going to give you a stat why this is so important in organizations today. Why listening and why human-centered connection is, to me, the game changer. Like companies who do this well will win. Companies who don't will lose. They will lose market share. They will lose revenue. They will lose profits. They will lose everything. Uh, Gartner has done some studies um, and Corn Ferry, but this one stat really just, to me, jumped off the page. Uh, It said that 53% of people today feel invisible in their organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. Over half of the organization feels invisible. They don't feel like they're part of anything. I mean, that is a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for disengagement. It's a recipe for depression. It's a, re- it's a recipe for failure, not just for your company, but for those people as humans. And that to me is why human-centered leadership is so important. You know, I, I, I tend to be somebody who believes we have a bigger call as leaders than just company success that we have, we have a call of people success, of human success, of society success, that, that we are, we are the, the leaders in our community, our society, our people, not just our company and the work that we do. And that's ultimately, that's why I came to Cardinal is because I, I truly felt like I saw an organization that didn't just say this. These weren't just words they put on the wall, but they were obsessive about making that a practice. So you're saying that the the culture part in your Venn diagram is not <laughs> a same that I put up on top of the wall in the nice <laughs> lobby before you walk in the building. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, honestly, if if every team member is not saying that this is a place I want to be and that I feel heard, then we still have work to do, and that we're doing that again, not just for Cardinals' success. We're doing that for that team member's success, the success with their friends and family in their community, in their society. That's, it's a broader success. And to me, how do you get people excited about something? It's, it's so much bigger than just a, a purpose at work. You know, and Daniel Pink in his book, Drive, he said, there's three things that every person wants. This is how you motivate and engage people. They want autonomy. They want to be self-directed. They want mastery. They want to get better. And third, they want purpose. They want meaning beyond the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is such great purpose. I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch Social Dilemma at all on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet, but I have have seen... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's powerful in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, it's depressing in some areas. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to watch in some, but, you know, you look yeah. at the, you know, the, the rise of the, of the of popularity and influencers in social media has destroyed suicide rates, like with girls in particular, you know, that since 2010, for the 15 to 19 year old girls, it's increased by 70%. And for girls age 10 to 14, it's increased by 151%. So when I talk about human centered leadership, I am not just talking about your company. I am talking about something that goes way deeper and is way more important. And you want to get an organization excited, give them purpose and meaning beyond just the work that that company does. And so that's why that's why on that Sunday, as I'm at the office, just going to town, I got so excited because I felt like this is a model that is deeper 
than just work culture. That this is culture broadly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you get people excited about that, man, that's where, you know, it goes back to the Braveheart quote with the paint on your face. That <laughs> one person fighting for something they believe in is worth more than a hundred paid soldiers. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting from a, from an uh, imagetic perspective that culture it's, it's standing on its side, but it's, it's standing almost like a totem. Yeah. Right? And yes. the way that you've got it, uh, uh, you know, clearly demarcated right in the center there, which, you know, kind of going back to the whole Inuksha sort of approach, yeah. right. You know, part Absolutely. of, part of, uh, part of what resonates with me about, you know, how you've correlated to the Inuksha principles, all of those things, they're wholly dependent on people having a respect for those that came before them. Yeah but also a respect for those that are coming behind them. Yes. That's right? a beautiful way to say that, Brian. Yeah, I love that. I'm stealing <laughs> that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you said that the last time we talked. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I gave you credit three times. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I give it to you freely, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So what I, like, what I really like about your model here is that when you were talking about people wanting the sense to belong – a higher purpose for what they're doing. And, you know, in recent years, we've heard that this is what the millennials want. This is what the Gen Z, this is what the next generation wants. But I've always seen as this is just what people want in general. I mean, everybody wants to know that what they're doing makes a difference, right? Who wants to be working at some corporation that's doing something completely horrible? I mean, everybody wants to do something. And I feel like your model is perfect. Like you can apply this to anything and and your family is a good example too. Absolutely. And I I love that you said that, you know, uh, generations um, don't necessarily feel things different. They just articulate that feeling different. So if, if a boomer generation was more, just more reserved in speaking that it didn't change the way they felt that, you know, they still wanted deep meaning. They wanted to connect to something. They wanted to make a difference. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to have a voice. Um, but they might not have been in a world that was open to the vocality of that, the vocalness of it mm-hmm. as much as, a, a, you know, a millennial or Gen Z is. So, yeah, I agree. I think it's a core tenet of humans and people and, Perfect. And so, you know, if you want to tap into your organization, you got to tap into those things. And we got a question here. Let's see here. Natalie Johnson, can you see that? Yes. (laughs) So leading young professionals with older, more traditional professionals, any advice on how to guide them to a common ground? Was there more beyond that? Yeah, there is. Okay. It says leading young professionals with older, more traditional professionals, any advice on how to guide them to a common ground where they utilize each other's strengths? That's a great great question. (laughs) It's such a great question. And, you know, this is really one of the first times in the history of the world where we've had, what, four generations working alongside each other together. And that creates some, you know, unique challenges. There's a a great new book um, out. It's called Zeconomy, I think. It's by... Um, I'm blanking. A, a buddy of mine's fr- a really good friend, but I, I got to read a little bit of an excerpt. Really good. And part of what they're talking about is, you know, this, you know, empowerment of the different generations. So, to me, the one differentiator at my house that brings us all together, um, because if you come to my house at night, like after dinner, I, I'm in the living room. My wife's probably upstairs. 
my, my kids are in their bedroom. So we're separated. So, and that's normal and that's okay because we all have different things that we're focused on and doing. But what we have to do is create campfire moments. Now, for me, the, the where we come together as a family is on my back patio. I have a campfire and I yell up. I'm like, kids, uh, who wants a s'more? <laughs> and <laughs> I love s'mores. They love s'mores. So we, you got to find that commonality. So what are the things that connect you? I love there was one person who said, you know, one of the, the problems in society today is most people know what we're against, but most people don't know what we're for. And so yeah. I think changing the conversation to say, where is the commonality? And what are we aligned with related to our beliefs? And then let's come together around those. And when you come together around those, guess what you have? Amazing conversation. So it wasn't, my campfire in my backyard is not about the s'more. The s'more is just what brings us together to gather. But then when we do come together, now we can share stories um, and build language and build culture around a bunch of different topics. And we'll talk about, you know, what'd you do at school? Well, oh, I did this thing at work. So we find connection. <laughs> what I'm saying is, can I come to your house for s'mores? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you've actually uh, baked in quite literally a, a another <laughs> positive, <laughs> positive association with that, right? Now, yes. now, now it's that gathering uh, also has an association with deliciousness. That's and right. Who doesn't, <laughs> who doesn't want that as part of their experience, right? That's I mean, right. That's, now now just, you've stepped <laughs> over into the user-centered design portion. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I baked in i'm still in that one too <laughs> i thought you brought up brought up some really great points there right like right now it, it's like this ca- counter culture right where it's like i'm for this and you're against that so like we have no equal footing right yeah. it, and especially in social media where people have a tendency to kind of be pretty nasty to each other where they wouldn't say that in front of somebody else's face yeah um so i know at least for me when i see things on social media and like maybe i'm on my own feed and i see something i think is just way out of line <laughs> i take that with a grain of salt because people are like not in their right mind i feel like yeah. when they're posting things on social media and then that's something they probably wouldn't say to anybody in, in person. Um, (laughs) so, I mean, uh, how do we deal with that? Right. We're coming together helps, you know, bridge some of that gap, right. You were talking about. Yeah. And I mean, Nick, this one is so, this one's so important. And this really is that whole side of the campfire side, the come together. It's so important. I had a CEO that I had said something to me long ago that I've brought with me that I loved. And he said, it's impossible to hate the person that's sitting across the table from you. And it's this idea that when we are communicating via email or text or on social, that it's really easy to be aggressive. But when you come together mm-hmm. The conversation changes. That's why, actually, I think this side, um, this campfire side is so critical today because we have now distributed organizations who are not sitting across the table all the time. And so it's going to become easier and easier for there to be angst and anger and fear and all of these, these, you know, emotions that we don't want to see. And so we as leaders have to learn to be obsessed about building campfires to bring our people together. This is why I think Zoom has been so successful. It's why, you know, all oh, of yeah. these platforms are, do, are, are you know, I, I, we used Google Hangouts and I, I was like, I'm, I'm buying my own Zoom account because I want to <laughs> be able to tile and see yeah. everybody. 49, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's why, you know, Tony Robbins just launched his conference with what was it 
like 13,000 faces on oh a, a, a screen all the way around him because mm-hmm. he wanted to see them and he wanted to see each other seeing each, each other. That's the power of a campfire. It's that you, you feel like you're in the presence of somebody else. And so this whole um, HCL model on the campfire side, we've got to gather people. And when we gather, we have to share. And through sharing, we have to learn. And and if we don't do that, then we'll be in a world of hurt down the road. Something you said there about, you know, it's impossible to hate the person that's sitting across from you. Uh, again, going back to some of my own training, you know, I, I would oftentimes work with people who are brilliant engineers yeah. and, you know, brilliant at understanding how to troubleshoot and solve problems. They weren't necessarily always the most brilliant at hearing what someone had to say or empathizing with their own experiences. And so we started using a phrase uh, that, you know, I I hear commonly now, you know, but it was uncommon at the time, uh, which is get in the chair. Hmm. Right? It's, it's kind of like walking someone else's shoes, right? Yeah. But, but from the perspective of trying to understand, you know, where are the process deficiencies or where is there a breakdown in the way that something in an interface, you know, should yeah. be optimized to, to work better for the experience until you get in the chair and yeah. really spend time understanding what is feeding that perspective you may just continue to throw out challenges to that perspective because you're convinced based on your own dogmatic intent and, yeah. you know, your own dogmatic belief system yep. that causes that reality tunnel where, where <laughs> yeah. you're already convinced, hey, I, I've got the answer here. Yeah, totally. And you know what, uh, Brian, I think that that whole idea of understanding somebody is so so critically important um, because you'll never get there with some people unless you do that. Mm -hmm. And to me, the best path to understanding is um, storytelling for one, because you're going to learn about people. But number two is questions. And um, I I feel like we in general are really bad at asking questions. Um, We, we think we're good and we're really not, you know, and it goes back to the fact that most people that are parents have studied from the same manual and they didn't even know it. And so (laughs) the first time they went to pick their child up from school, they turned around in the car and they asked the question from the manual, which is how was your day? Uh, And it's, it's a horrifically stupid question. And here's why, because our, our children also study from the same manual and that they would look back at us and they would say, fine. And then we would get upset because we're like, our kids don't want to share. Well, no, the problem was we asked a horrible question. Mm -hmm. We asked a question that was actually designed for the answer. Fine. Um, And so we have to challenge these things that just come natural um, in how we ask questions to elicit connection. And so a friend of mine challenged me long ago and they said, change the question. Next time you pick up your son, ask this, what was the best part of your day? And so I made that one small change, turned around, asked my son, I said, Cole, what was the best part of your day? And I could see he was ready to say fine because he knew what question was coming. <laughs> well, in the back seat of my car, driving back to my house from elementary school, he wove a Steven Spielberg-esque tale of recess. <laughs> I mean, there were villains. There was a plot. There was so much stuff going on. I mean, it was one of the most meaningful conversations we had had, so much so that that became a question that we asked around our dinner table. Not how was your day, 
but what was the best what was the best part of your day and so we have to challenge the convention around the questions we ask so think about the meetings you're in that you're not getting engagement it's not about your people it's probably about the questions that you ask as a leader to elicit sharing around the campfire. And so the, the challenge to build connection by addressing some of your shortcomings is a great way to become a better leader. I'm, I'm going to add to what you just said. I'm, I'm going to throw something up here that uh, I'll, I'll credit one of our, our former guests, <laughs> Tommy Reed. Um, but this one right here, QSR. Have you, have you ever seen that before? No. That's I'm uh, so excited. <laughs> so, so we had a guest on on the program who uh, whose background is in organizational design, and nice. uh, one of the things that uh, he taught me about that has stuck with me was that that term QSR, which is the question to statement ratio. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, and it's something that can be beneficial anytime you're going into a conversation where there's an important outcome, particularly one that is dependent on eliciting information from someone. Right? Yeah. And because we, we tend to kind of leap ahead. And again, back to that sort of engineering mentality, you know, where your dogma feeds, you yeah. know, your conviction that you already know the outcome. If you just take time to turn that around, I love it, and recognize your own tendency maybe to say more than you ask. Yeah, <laughs> that is that's a that's a brilliant. I'm going to add that sticky note to my screen. It's a great <laughs> reminder right in front of your face. <laughs> I love it. Well, and it's a, you know I think again it's it's important from that campfire perspective. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because the, the one of the great powers of a, an effective campfire is the conversation, and mm -hmm. statements don't elic elicit conversation. Yeah, I, I, you know, there was a, a coworker that I worked with once who, you know, clearly someone who is more on the introverted side. Yep. And uh, you know, I ha I had someone come up to me who was on my team that said, "I just think that she's ineffective. I, I can't work with her." And. Uh, and, and I, when I started probing a little bit to find out why, I, I just said, well, you know, did you know about this? You know, did you know about hmm. this? And, and the reaction I got was, well, no, I had no idea. I mean, how would I know? Well, have yeah. you ever had a conversation with her? I mean, there's, <laughs> there could be an opportunity to ask some questions. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and you might pick up pretty quickly. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, not only did they go on to become lunch buddies, but, you know, they were huge advocates for one another. I mean, there was a, there was a great working relationship that was forged out of that. But sometimes, and I, you know, hopefully that's a contribution from a human-centered leadership <laughs> perspective. <laughs> to be able to, to to even you know observe that that was going on among teammates yeah. and and give a give a proper nudge where it was due. I love that. <laughs> Have you had a conversation? Well, no, <laughs> no, bye. Yeah, so Brian brings up a good point for me. One of the earliest leadership lessons I ever learned um, was when I was actually a line cook in a restaurant. I just got promoted to head line cook, and the chef turns to me. He's like, Nick, I want you to walk your shift. I was like, cool, I'll walk around here and, you know, make sure the place is clean and, you know, make sure there's not anything on the floor. And he's like, no, he's like, I want you to walk around here, 
talk to the people, have <laughs> genuine conversations with them, awesome. get to know them and just see how their day is going. And he's like, you can't fake it. He's like, you have to have a real conversation with these people to yeah. understand where they're coming from. And he's like, some people are introverts and they're not going to talk to you about anything. He goes, but if you just know that one little thing and you make a personal connection with them, yeah. you're, you're making these human interactions, these human connections. Um, See, and, and Nick, what you did there to me is as a team member, you created a campfire with your customer. Mm-hmm. That's what going out there did is you set up a campfire and you had a conversation and you learned something about them. I love that. I mean, it goes back to one of my favorite, you know, uh, my, one of my mentors, Mark Sanborn, he talks about this a lot, but um, L'Oreal as a company was very successful and um, the CEO was being interviewed and they said, you know, what, what is, what is it that has allowed you to be so successful? And, and he said, well, every company I've ever been at that one had these three loves and we brought the, the three loves here and the three loves were love what you do love who you do it with and love who you do it for. And so what your leader there was doing was extending that love outside the company um, to, to say, I, I love who I'm doing it for. And because of that, I want to learn about them. And so I'm going to set up campfires. I love who I do it with. So as a team, we're going to come together. Um, I love what I do, right? I'm challenged. So I, I, I mean, to me, that's a great tie in to taking it even outside of the walls. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how customer experience, client experience, right? CX. It's, it's this yeah. very common buzz term now. I mean, that <laughs> these, these principles, you know, yep. I mean, they, they go back some time, <laughs> yeah. but, but folks have been picking up on it and learning about it and realizing that the engagement right is, yep. is very critical. It's critical, not just because, Ultimately, it helps facilitate a purchase that keeps the company going. It's critical because that's what helps establish the brand. That's what actually creates the value, right? Whether or not someone's buying something, you know, there's, there's all those positive associations that go with what is being given. That yeah. helps to drive that engagement. Well, and that's why, you know, Brian, earlier, I love that you, you talked about this. I, who's come before us? You know, who, who is that, that belief? And, and you'll notice, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about are tenants that were long ago. In my book, I'm talking about 14th century Japanese principles like Kintsugi and Wabi Sabi. You know, that I'm talking about Anukshuks from thousands of years ago, <laughs> at campfires from all of recorded history. Hmm. It's that I, I, I believe as organizations, you know, sometimes for us to take a step forward, we have to take a step back. So mm-hmm. and for us to see ahead, we have to see behind. And so I love tapping into these ideas that nothing's new. I mean, nothing I'm talking about here is new. Uh, it's <laughs> proven. That's the difference. It's not that it's new or innovative. It's that it's proven. This is stuff that has worked across the history of us as human beings. So that brings up a good good point, Peter. If we're, if we're looking at this and I'm a leader and I want, you know, like I'm not happy with the culture or maybe I want to make some changes, where where should I start to tackle um, to, to get this human-centered leadership on course or maybe implemented in my organization? So the biggest deterrent to change is the size of what needs to be done. And so one of my favorite books, The One Thing, tells a story of one of my favorite movies growing up, City Slickers with Billy Crystal. <laughs> and if you remember that movie, 
Curly, who was the old crusty cowboy on the trip, kept looking at Billy Crystal's character and said, life is about one thing. And he kept trying to get Curly to say, tell me, what is that one thing? Well, long story short, the one thing was different for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so to me, what I tell people to do if they want to be a human-centered leader is to do one thing. And don't be concerned about it being big. Mother Teresa once was being interviewed and somebody was asking her and they said, does it bother you that the amazing work you're doing is just a drop in the bucket? And she said, don't say, don't ever say that what I have done is a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the ocean. And yet I still do it. And so we have to be empowered around simple and small. So it's okay to do something small and something simple because guess what that becomes? That becomes something bigger and something more impactful. But when you try to do everything and you let perfect be your enemy of done, you will never do anything. So what I challenge people to say is what's one simple thing I can do today to be a human-centered leader? Is it sending a text to my team members on Friday and saying, I hope you have a great weekend? Is it me recording a selfie video on Monday and saying, I am so grateful for what you did last week. Here's what you did. It was amazing. I mean, what is the simple thing that you can do? You know, there was um, another great stat where they said 70% of the workforce says that recognition is the number one motivator for for performance, more than money, more than benefits, more than location, more, more than anything. Recognition. When was the last time you recognized a team member. There are simple, small things. You can take one minute and record a selfie video and send that to a teammate. And guess what you're doing? You are stepping in to human-centered leadership. I love that. And don't be afraid to do that selfie video. <laughs> I'm somebody who did 90 days straight of video with yeah. Troy on LinkedIn. So if I can do 90 videos, you can do one <laughs> selfie thankful to your teammate. <laughs> it's awesome. That was great, Nick, to watch you do that. <laughs> Yeah, really I knew I, I flustered around, you know, in the beginning, but eventually I caught my groove, you know, at 88, episodes, 88 videos or something That's like awesome. that. <laughs> I only went in for the 15-day video challenge, and that was, <laughs> that, that was intense. <laughs> well, here's, here's one question that I want to ask you. I know we're kind of getting close on time here, but, you know, some of what I, I heard you say is there, there needs to be a willingness to change. That comes yeah. along with receiving the new information, and uh, you know, organizations, particularly ones that have some kind of service delivery, yeah. they, they tend to get hung up on the things that they believe are of value that they are delivering to their clients, and are later, you know, surprised to discover not only was it not of value, but it's a frustration. Yeah. Right. For yeah. for those that they're trying to serve. So I'd love to hear your perspective a little bit about, you know, willingness to change. And uh, particularly when you're coming from a place where against you, you're entrenched in your uh, convictions. Yeah. It's, you know, one of the, I sent a text to um, a couple friends after I watched the social dilemma, um, that movie. And one of the things I said on it was I challenge uh, each of you to challenge one of your strongest belief beliefs and then apply grace to others. Um, that, you know, it this idea of 
mobility and flexibility is so important. And as I'm getting older, so when I get out of bed now, when I was younger, you know, I get out of bed and I was flexible. I was ready to roll. (laughs) And it's not the same thing anymore. I get out of bed and it's harder. It's harder. And I, I, you know, there was this great um, illustration called the backward steering bike. Have you ever seen that video? (laughs) And so this engineer, basically, they they built this bike that when you turn the, the steering wheel this way, the front wheel went the opposite. That's all they changed. And it took this very smart um, person, it took him eight months to learn how to ride this bike. And part of it was because of the neuroplasticity was so set in his brain because he had ridden a bike so long. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, I wonder how long it's going to take my son to change. And he gave him because his son had only been riding for a couple of years. It took his son two weeks to learn to ride the bike. And the idea is that the longer we've done something, the harder it is for us to change. And the change takes sustained hard work. And so I think the illustration here is if you are going into this thinking that I have opportunity to change as a leader, to become more human centered, that I'm going to watch one webinar or one live video and I'm going to be that leader. Well, we're fooling ourselves. You will never learn to ride that bike. It is going to take sustained attention and effort and difficulty and falling and failure. But if you are committed, eventually the neural pathways in your brain will change and it will start to become common for you. That will become the first thing you think about. And it takes work. And so my big thing that I tell people is if you believe in change and you truly want to do it, that you have to make a commitment to yourself that I'm going to do the hard work. That I'm going to say over the next 12 months, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to tell my team when I screw up, tell me, right? Hold me accountable. That this is going to be hard work. But at the end of the day, if I do that hard work, guess what I'm going to be able to do? I'm going to be able to ride a bike that is steering different than the one I've ridden my whole life. Doing downward dog, you can't put your heels <laughs> to the floor the first time. You know? No. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I still can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might help you get out of bed in the morning if yeah, you know, right. one, one of your new disciplines was you know, a little, little downward dog practice. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Peter, you know, you, uh, you've shared so much with us, uh, both in this episode and, and previously, um, with the ugly advantage, I'm, I'm curious, you know, so what's, I, I heard you saying that you're going back through the process of doing some, some rewrites. Yep. Um, so what's next on the horizon for that? Yeah. So we are finalizing our, um, um, our submission to three, um, publishers by the end of October. So the goal is that we will have the the new and improved and reworked version out next year. And uh, it's, you know, it's been a, a labor of love. It's been a long process, but, you know, it's, it's really feeling like the, the first couple versions to me, I wrote it and it was um, effort and some of it felt like decent ideas, but now it feels like it's not a book. It's an extension of everything I've spent my career doing. And it's stuff that is deeply ingrained in my belief and that I've tested and works. And so, you know, I, I really feel like I'm at a place where this is my book. Now, mm-hmm. this is the book that I believe will make workplaces better that will make leaders better, that will make communities better. I mean, that's the, that's the belief I'm now stepping into with this new focus of the book. 
I'd like you to make me a promise. Yes, I will. <laughs> not only, not only do you know that Nick and I are going to support you when yes. when that that version is ready to go, but um, we don't want you to get swept away with all the other people who are going to be so excited to talk to you. <laughs> we want you to commit to coming back to sharing more about it with us. Thank I you. I promise. <laughs> That's awesome. So For sure. People are looking for you uh, online. Where where can they find you? Yeah, I'm all over the place, but generally, so LinkedIn, um, obviously Peter Lynch at Cardinal Group. It's a great way to find me. Um, on the other social platforms, I tend to be under at Real Peter Lynch because Peter Lynch is such a common name that I had to <laughs> I had to take the real. So I get um, messages from people who think I'm the Fidelity Peter Lynch now, uh, but <laughs> like no, I'm the other real Peter Lynch. <laughs> uh, but I'm on Instagram. Um, uh, I'm on on Facebook. I'm on TikTok. I'm all over the place. I love social media. I love learning about how people connect and grab attention. Uh, but you can also email me. So peter.lynch at cardinalgroup.com. That's great. The really real Peter Lynch. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time with us today. This is, this has been great. It's uh, it's just always a pleasure to speak with you and, and uh, just love everything that you've done uh, with the human centered leadership uh, design that you've put together. Thank you for sharing that with us today. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Nick, Brian. I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you.